Jim Larkin was born in a period of great industrial unrest and social upheaval. And at a time when his father had taken his first steps on his long journey through the corridors of history. A journey that was to be marked by great struggles, painful sacrifices, much suffering and bitter failures. But which, in the end, if not in his lifetime, was to lead to the establishment of the greatest and potentially the most powerful movement in Irish history, a united congress of trade unions representing all Ireland, North and South. Although young Jim's whole life and all his roots stemmed from these historical struggles and from his association with his great father, his own stature as a leader of the movement in our time was a measure of the man himself the reward of his own efforts, won by the dedicated application of his remarkable intellect to the problems of his time, but above all else, to that deep sense of personal commitment, so self-evident as to command at once the respect and admiration of all those with whom he came in contact, and which inspired trade unionists generally with a sense of personal loyalty, unique in modern trade union history. That was John Foster, President of the Workers' Union of Ireland, speaking at the graveside of the General Secretary of the Union, James Larkin. The piercing cold and heaped-up snow of February 1969 reminded many of another February and another burial. We march the last march behind our silent leader. Noting the unanimous courtesies of this changed town. The shop shutters closed. The flags hung at half-mast. All the traffic neatly diverted. The discreet blinds down. Forgive us if we do not attend too closely to newspapers with black-bordered notes of appreciation. The telegraphed condolences of those who never understood are expressions of official sympathy from those in high station. There were other marches which were not so easy. There were indeed many other marches which were not so easy, remembered by old comrades in that February 20 years ago when Big Jim Larkin was laid to rest. Big Jim, the man who came to Dublin to preach the mission of divine discontent, the man who said... You're going to drag yourselves off your knees and out of the pit. You're going to show this rotten city that when Christ said the kingdom of God is within us, he meant all of us, not just the fellas with the frock coats. We'll teach the world that Jack had a soul as precious as his masters. They preach that, but they don't show any signs of believing it. That's what you'll fight for. And fight they did. They fought and won the right to drag themselves from the pit, those pioneers of industrial trade unionism, in the first years of the century. No man did more to lead them, no man did more for the common people than Big Jim Larkin. No boy was closer to the centre of the struggle that culminated in 1913 than young Jim. Fifty years later, he could look back with some pride. Looking at the beginning of that period, we first of all see great masses of men and women living under the most fearsome conditions in many ways, oppressed 
not physically by poverty alone, but oppressed spiritually because poverty is not merely a physical condition, it's also a spiritual effect. Men who are lacking food for the body will also be enfeebled in their mind and in their spiritual activities. The human spirit uh, cannot flourish in conditions where human life is held to be so cheap. In that period, we had, in our own city, conditions of living for families uh, that were indescribable and yet were not being changed. We had, so far as employers were concerned, not because they were evil men individually, because they were part of an industrial system which could only be changed by the organized effort of the major part of industry by the workers, the employers rejecting the right of workers to organize, and refusing to accede to them the right of consultation and conference. Every wage claim was denounced in most cases by the economists as being an economic fallacy because there was supposed to be only a limited wage fund which the employers out of not the goodness of their heart but the intelligence of their industrial leadership set aside each year with which to maintain and carry on production in the forthcoming year. And part of that provided the wages for the workers. More was drawn out of that fund than was justified then the following year there would be less employed and there would be less development of production. And therefore, it was a vicious circle which apparently could not be broken by human endeavor because both the economists, the employers, and the unfortunate workers were held to be subject uh, to this iron economic law of private enterprise and capitalist production. It was a concept that was never accepted by the leaders of workers because they said that the poor were poor because they were repressed and downtrodden and denied their rights as human beings and citizens. And that if they were not in such a condition, but were organized and able to use their collective strength and their collective bargaining capacity, then this so-called iron law could be changed. And of course, the proof is that it has been changed, that there is no such iron law and that it is widely accepted today by progressive economists that one of the most progressive factors in modern industrial society is in fact the continuous pressure of organized workers to ever raise their standard of living, demand from employers a ever, an ever increasing level of improved productivity and production, and from society in its collective sense an acceptance that there must be forward movement always, not regression. But from those backward years, we have advanced. The conditions of life have changed. It's almost impossible to compare in any realistic way the life of the general worker of Dublin, the first 10 years of this century, and the worker today. Not because the worker today has got a standard of life that is adequate in every way, but because that standard is so immeasurably greater, more secure, more complete than what his brother had 40 or 50 years ago. The mental outlook of the worker has changed. He's more intelligent, more educated, more conscious of his place in society and of his ability to 
exercise his rights as a citizen in society. And above all, through the achievements of the trade union movement, society itself has changed. We have all changed in our outlook and our thinking. And it is difficult for us to think back and to picture not merely the physical factors of 50 years ago, but to think back and think in terms of the thoughts and ideas and the philosophies that made for so much and so deep human suffering in that period. It is to the credit of the trade union movement that those 50 years have brought tremendous changes. They've not all been due merely to the activity of the trade unions. Many other men in society and women with great minds and hearts have made their contribution. Society itself has changed in its capacity to give to men and women a, a greater and a fuller life, more endowed with the world's goods, with greater opportunities for their children, and a wider horizon for us to look beyond. But in that development, and in that upward march, the trade unions in, I submit, have made a major contribution. What I think is important is to bear in mind that those trade unions were not organizations of leaders, not organizations just of agitators and propagandists. They were the effort of the ordinary working man and woman who instinctively, very often not clearly as to what the end would be, came together, realized their collective strength, and through measures of opposition, of vilification and opposition, gradually molded this tremendous weapon, abused it not merely for their own forward movement, for their own physical benefit, but I think, and I submit very strongly, have used the means provided by their collective strength in the trade union movement for the benefit of society as a whole. Jim Larkin was proud of the Irish working class. He was proud of his father. As James Plunkett Kelly recalls, he was very much his father's son. Oh, he was very conscious of being Jim Larkin's son. And uh, he was, in an odd way, uh, and quite mistakenly, um, concerned, I think, about his own inadequacy in this matter. He thought he was inadequate uh, because of his great uh, admiration and love of his father. He said, uh, of course, there would never be two Jim Larkins. But in point of fact, of course, there were two Jim Larkins. And uh, the one Jim Larkin carried on the <coughs> established uh, trade unionism and uh, the right to negotiate, where, of course, it hadn't existed before. But having established that right, he then died in 47, and uh, young Jim then had the business of adopting this new movement, very powerful movement, giving it direction, and teaching it techniques for dealing with the the new set-up in society, where trade unionism had won an honoured place, where labour courts were set up, and uh, where conciliation boards and so on. Trade unionism had become part of the fabric of modern living. In the early 40s, John Swift worked in the Dublin Trades Union Council with both Big Jim and Young Jim. Uh, at that time, the council was running a campaign against the Wages Stand Still Order, 1942, and the year before that against the new trade union legislation. The Dublin Trade Union Council played a very active part in the campaign at that time. 
And uh, I was on the executive of the council along with uh, the older Jim. And uh, uh, for three years he was president of the council and I was vice president. And uh, I had a, an opportunity to uh, know him uh, in working together, more particularly on committee work and that type of thing. He wasn't uh, at his best in committee work. He was at his best on more dramatic occasions uh, when we ran demonstrations and that type of thing. Uh, I don't think he had the patience for getting down to committee work. Uh, he was a vol volcano, of course, was Jim Narkin, and uh, always ready to throw out lava and... Uh, he wasn't a very easy man to work with. Fortunately, Jim was active, and young Jim was active in the council at that time, and uh, he very often acted as a go-between, uh, a very diplomatic one, between the father and the rest of us on the council when we'd come up against uh, difficulties uh, with uh, old Jim. We sometimes think of Larkinism as an exclusively Dublin thing. This was, in fact, never true either in the early years or again in the 1940s when Big Jim gave Sean Dunn the job of organising farm workers and turf workers throughout the country. Jim Larkin was very much aware of the fact that if conditions and wages in the rural areas were bad, the workers concerned would naturally gravitate towards Dublin and would have a bad effect upon the level which he was trying to establish, the level of wages and conditions which he was trying to establish here. And in that, and therefore, he found that he felt that it was essential that rural workers should be uh, organised insofar as it was possible in order to get the unity of the Irish working class as a whole as well. Quite apart from these immediate considerations, there was always in his mind the common interest of all workers throughout the country, of all wage workers. The fact that they were all their problems were uniform, regardless of what shape or form of employment they followed. Yes, there was that feeling of general solidarity. There was indeed. Um, I, when I set my hand to the organisation of farm labourers, for instance, in County Dublin and in the adjoining counties, I found a tradition, a very strong tradition, of 1913 amongst the older men who are still alive and who remember that time, a tradition of having been organised by James Larkin Sr. And this tradition was carried on by their sons, and there was a very great pride in the fact that they had their fathers, the sons had a great pride in the fact that their fathers had been concerned in the tremendous social upheaval of 1913. And uh, this helped considerably, of course, in, in organisation. Added to the fact that during the war years, Farm labourers, it's not often remembered now, but farm labourers were not permitted to emigrate from this country. Anybody who worked on the land was compelled to remain in Ireland. He wasn't given a travel permit. And this had the effect of multiplying the, uh, the, lab the number of people who were available for work on farms. And uh, it also had the effect of making it uh, somewhat somewhat easier to organise such workers because they were there in such great numbers, which, of course, a situation which no longer exists, of course. 
laborers now, the farm laborers are very few and far between, relatively. The uh, union uh, which uh, the Workers' Union of Ireland carried at that stage, of course, uh, a very strong feeling of tradition and a feeling of of uh, working-class solidarity, didn't it? This was there, and when, when one stepped into uh, Unity Hall in Marlborough Street, the old hall, which was a converted tenement house, or into Thomas Ashe Hall in College Street, uh, there was about it uh, an atmosphere which I suppose could be traced back to the days when James Larkin Sr. had uh, participated in the movement of the industrial workers of the world in America. There was a, an air of freedom, an air of comradeship, of brotherliness, and of idealism. Something intangible, very hard to describe. It was there. And people called one another brother, and you knew that they meant it. This was very much part of the Larkin way, as James Plunkett Kelly recalls. They didn't look upon a trade union as something which only looked after wages and conditions. To them, a union was a sort of focal point for a whole uh, philosophy of working-class improvement. Uh, they believed, as I, I think I have said, that, uh, for instance, uh, it should look after uh, members' problems, uh, <clears throat> give them legal advice. Uh, I don't just mean on the question of workmen's compensation to which they're entitled, but advice, legal advice generally, in which they should help with housing cases. Uh, in, in which they should look after uh, people who are applying for pensions and see that they got their rights. And indeed, in, in, in which uh, a mother who perhaps was being badly treated by a son, perhaps the son wouldn't be given up enough money or that at home, that the union secretary would call the son in and say, look here, you're not playing the game. Now that was on one side. On the other side, they believed it to be, that it ought to be a recreational centre. And there was an attempt by Jim and some others to develop the workers' union in this way at one stage, and indeed for some three years they had football clubs, swimming clubs, photography clubs, film shows, lectures and all the rest of it. And uh, this uh, was the kind of thing they believed in. And it, as I say, it, it, did become, uh, into, it did come into operation uh, over a period of about three years, but of course because young Jim and others were far too busy, we would far too much work to do. And uh, the pity is, indeed it's a reflection on, on uh, members that if you stop doing the thing, they don't do it themselves. And this, is the, this, in fact, was a rather heartbreaking thing which was noted by young Jim as well as his father before him. The death of Big Jim did, of course, as has been so often said, usher in a new era. The Lord Mayor of Dublin, Frank Tusky, remembers... When the father died, of course, everyone thought that we'd suffered a blow that we'd never recover from. And this, of course, didn't happen because young Jim was very well able to take up the mantle. Not the mantle of the father, because he was a different man. He talked differently, and he acted differently. He was a man more of his time than his father's time, and was so big a man that he was able to uh, sort of be a big man in his own right, and not in his father's name. One of the things that struck me most forcibly about young Jim Larkin was his true love of democracy and the way he put that democracy into practice in the trade union movement. He built up a very effective and a very authoritative executive in the Workers' Union of Ireland. Uh, our delegate conference was a model of trade union democracy. And his whole administration of the trade union 
was based very firmly in his very strong democratic beliefs. He believed that men should take responsibility. Oh, he not only believed that they should, but as far as the officials were concerned, he insisted that they did. And he gave them the authority that went with that. Uh, he was always prepared if he knew that you were right and that you had taken whatever necessary steps you, you should have taken. He was always prepared to back you up to the hilt. He was also very quick to let you know when he was displeased with your performance as a trade union official. And there's none of us that worked in the Workers' Union of Ireland that didn't at some time or other feel the lash of Jim's tongue. He was a kind man, though. He was a very kind man. And he was also a very shy man. He was a man who had very few human failings, but had a very deep sympathy and appreciation of those failings in others. He wouldn't condone them if they interfered with your work, but you always felt that he had a deep sense of sympathy with anyone in trouble of any nature and was always prepared in the most quiet way to help. Limo D also learned the job of being a trade union organiser from Jim Larkin. He had no time for yes-men as far as the staff was concerned. Uh, if you came to him with a problem, uh, it wasn't something that you picked up from a telephone yourself or something that was thrown into your lap by a shop steward or a member. You had to think for yourself, and you only came to him as far as he was concerned when you had thought sufficiently about this and couldn't come forward with a solution. Uh, equally, when you mentioned the problem to him, he would ask you to know what way you thought the matter should be dealt with. And uh, while he would argue with you about this, uh, you normally went away accepting his advice or guidance, but he didn't insist on you doing this. Uh, he was quite prepared to give the uh, branch officials uh, freedom within the rules of the union, uh, but if in fact they made mistakes, well then quite clearly he couldn't be held responsible for it. But he didn't adopt that attitude. He was available there for uh, everybody to um, come and give, the, give him the, uh, their problems, uh, and, and in point of fact his telephone and Bray was uh, available as well to the officials. Uh, and on many an occasion I had to ring him in the small hours of the morning to ask him about uh, for advice on different problems. Uh, what would be done or what should be done the following morning when consultation of the normal order mightn't be uh, a workable proposition. Now, while he always wanted to know what you would have said in the thing, he was very much a man who knew his own mind always, wasn't he? Very much. Uh, he had very strong ideas about uh, certain aspects of trade unionism. Uh, I would imagine that uh, trade unionists around the country would be interested in some of these. Uh, for example, as far as uh, work to rule, ban on overtime, go slow, one-day strikes, all these things which are all industrial actions in their own right. As far as these things are concerned, he didn't believe in these unless the members were prepared uh, to have a strike following these. But if the uh, members were merely going to take up uh, one of these ideas in order to... Uh, forced the employer to concede a claim, but were not prepared to go any farther than that, well, then he wasn't uh, prepared to go along with this. Not that he was a lover of strikes. He was a great believer in negotiation. This is quite true. He, he on innumerable occasions, stated that his father built uh, the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union and the Workers' Union of Ireland uh, in the early 1900s, and that the purpose of the union 
Now, the purpose of all unions was to negotiate. Now, his father and uh, the people who followed him uh, gave to us that right and that privilege, and it was now our job to go ahead and negotiate for the members. Uh, I also heard him say on many an occasion that despite all the militancy that one hears at trade union meetings, the average trade union member would never thank an official uh, who could have got for the member uh, a wage increase or a reduction in hours or whatever it was while the member was working rather than the member having to go on the street for it. And as far as he was concerned, the policy of the union was the maximum gain at the minimum cost. And as far as that was concerned, he always viewed the maximum gain not so much in how much money you could squeeze from the employer, because sometimes uh, we can have sufficient strength in a job which will not just take as much money as we possibly can from an employer, but in fact can result in we closing the job down altogether. If you do that, well, then your own people are out of work, and in fact you have abused your own strength to the detriment of your own people. As far as he was concerned, one had got to keep a, a very even keel as far as all this was concerned. As a negotiator on the management side, Hugh McNeil can offer a very fair assessment of the quality of Jim Larkin. Well, um, there were many sides to Jim Larkin. Um, you could see him just as a straight negotiator uh, sitting across the table from you. Uh, you could see him uh, the way he led the people that he was uh, representing and then in time you got to know him a little better as a man as a person and um, in all of these he, he you know he was a big man um, take him as a negotiator first of all um, as a tactician I think he was superb one of the best I have come across uh, he knew in, in negotiations when to push hard for something. He knew when his argument was weak and to give way. He knew when a display of annoyance or irritation was a good ploy to use. Um, he could appear very unreasonable in these circumstances and tell you to take it or leave it and close the files and, and make as though to walk out of the room. And the difficulty you had was to know whether he meant it or not because he didn't always... Um, essentially, I think, in negotiating, he was a practical man. He was trying to find answers to problems. He wasn't um, a person with completely doctrinaire views. Um, he was a person who didn't see collective bargaining in terms of winning and losing. He realized that you, like he, had to uh, do a job and that there was no long-term advantage in appearing to win or lose a particular case, he realized that in most issues all the right and all the wrong was not on one side of the table. Um, when he was in, negotiating, in negotiations you could see him as a leader that um, he had this tremendous power that he was in control of the situation. Um, who spoke at a meeting he decided. Um, if it suited his purpose he would allow the people free reign. If he didn't then nobody spoke but him. Um, he was democratic in the sense that he would always end up by saying to people, if you want to have a strike on this, you have a strike on it. But in the ultimate, it was always um, his judgment that his people relied on. They had tremendous trust and rightly so in his own uh, judgment. Uh, the other 
aspect of Jim Larkin which one got to know over the years was uh, him as a person and uh, the thing that comes most to mind about this was his complete uh, integrity uh, which showed itself in the honouring of undertakings not only say in the, in the, the letter of the thing but in the spirit always um, he was a stickler for procedures uh, if he believed that an undertaking had been given or that there was a procedure to be followed then it was followed down the line and no departure was permitted on either side by his own people or by management he was never unfair in negotiating when I first got to, 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 to came into contact with him I was quite young and inexperienced and uh, you realised he would not let you walk yourself into something many a time I can remember when it was obvious afterwards that one was on the point of conceding something perhaps one shouldn't have, he would suggest, why don't you take that away and think about it and we'll meet in a week's time or so. Um, he was consistent, of course, that what he got now on a particular basis he would not use differently a week from now or a month from now. Um, one also sensed in him a, a very shy and retiring person who... Uh, could quite easily be embarrassed if he felt any fuss was being made over him and uh, fuss to which he was entitled as a person but this embarrassed him and this embarrassment I think showed in an irritation which really was uh, not an irritation so much as being um, upset at being being specially dealt with um, finally I think my, my abiding impression of him of course was his, his overall stature he was a big man in every sense of the word um, he had clear ideas what he wanted he never compromised on these in his dealings with you he had his own strategies he was working towards his own objectives um, solving problems on the way but very clear what he wanted and where he was going and in my experience um, stood head and shoulders over his contemporaries whether these were managers or trade union leaders young Jim Larkin and we still think of him as young Jim he was a very practical man as has been said with a realistic approach to realistic gainable objectives but it would be very wrong to imagine that he held no underlying philosophy James Plunkett Kelly I think his whole life was a philosophy of socialist um, uh, principles. And he did state them in any of his big speeches to Congress. He, he was very clear, moved along very clearly thought out socialist lines. Not narrow continental doctrinaire sort of lines, but I suppose one could say in the, in the style of the, the sort of British socialist school of, uh, you know, the British working class socialist school. Uh, rather than a continental school, but he did have um, he did have a continental um, basis. He didn't it. think of the welfare state, say, as being the be all and end all. No, but I think he thought it'd be a damn fine beginning. But uh, <laughs> he he didn't get near it. And you must remember that it's quite uh, respectable now to talk about the welfare state. I remember in 1956 talking about the welfare state and being hounded and pounded by by magazines like Hibernia. Uh, not the present Hibernia, of course, but the Hibernia of that time. They just couldn't even take the any defence of the welfare state. And I, I read a very eminent priest uh, who wrote against the welfare state and uh, pointed out to the people that this would be a very bad thing from a Catholic point of view because the welfare state uh, curtailed the, uh, uh, the field for the exercise of charity. 
In other words, keep the a pet poor so that your better-off Christian could exercise uh, charity, as though charity had something got to do with pounds, shillings and pence. Well, but look, that's, you know, it's so ridiculous. But that is the sort of thinking that's going on. And Jim, I say, certainly uh, believed in welfare state. And but as a beginning so only. Oh, as a beginning only, he believed in nationalisation. He believed in a whole social, socialist policy. Um, what he might believe in after that, I don't know. But he never deviated from, uh, from, from his belief in that policy uh, in the face of the most bitter and vicious attacks. He refused to recant or to... I remember him being challenged to say he wasn't a socialist, that he wasn't a communist. He refused to do so. And whenever it came to making a statement in one of these crises, he stood up and pronounced loudly and clearly, but calmly and with enormous dignity and, uh, and logic, uh, his beliefs in, in this socialism. Not very long ago, Jim Larkin recalled with equanimity the period of the vilification and name-throwing. Well, the word communism, of course, has been frequently misused in this and other countries in the same way as socialism has been misused. Uh, I think every period in political activity has its own type of dirty word, and uh, in the periods of the 40 and the 50, communism happened to be the, the convenient word that seemed to have the, the sharpest reaction. Uh, at an earlier period, of course, People like Larkin and Connolly were just as vehemently denounced for being socialists or syndicalists. And uh, if one is going to be misled by labels, of course, there's going to be endless confusion. The test is that uh, after a period of 50 years, uh, those who were parties to condemn a Connolly or a Larkin for being a syndicalist or a socialist or a communist are now the ones that uh, praise these very men for the contribution they've made to the growth of this nation. So that in retrospect, uh, it might be as well to look behind the labels and look at what the men were actually trying to do and what they did actually accomplish. On the same occasion, an interview for RTE, Jim Larkin stressed his belief that, important though it is, trade union activity as such is not enough. One of the major problems that the trade union movement and its members uh, has come up against is that through the activity of the trade unions over the years, uh, workers have now attained certain standards of living, which of course in turn lead them to expect uh, a rise in standard in other ways. And uh, we're reaching the problem where, in fact, the faster we run in a trade union sense, insofar as wages and conditions are concerned, the more we seem to stand in the one place. Because we've now got to the point that if the working people in this and other countries want, in fact, to see their standard of living continue to improve uh, and uh, a, a completely new in, environment be provided for them to live in, uh, they've got to think in more basic terms of basic changes in regard to the economic and uh, social relationships within which we all live. And that means that the trade unions have got to move out from their narrow field of purely economic and industrial relations and, and take on a greater responsibility in respect of the political and legislative fields in which so many of the conditions are determined which now affect our people. Uh, no sharper example can be found than the fact that uh, since the beginning of the first war, the Second World War, we've been engaged in a continuous uh, campaign to try and maintain wage levels against rising prices. Uh, 
on the whole, we've been reasonably successful. Uh, but there's no satisfaction to a trade union official and his members to know that you've secured a wage increase today and that tomorrow it's going to be wiped out by rising prices. In many instances, this rise in prices has been the result of uh, governmental policy decided in the field of legislation, uh, which the trade unions are incapable of controlling or determining. And equally, if one looks at an agenda of a trade union conference, my own union, for example, uh, one will find that uh, probably three-quarters of the resolutions on the agenda uh, deal with matters expressing the requirements and the demands of workers as citizens, uh, which can be only considered and dealt with in the field of legislation. Now, do the trade unions, in fact, expect somebody else to do their work for them? Or are they going to supply uh, the active-minded men and women, uh, the funds and the organisation, uh, which will make possible to carry into the field of uh, government uh, the requirements of this very large body of citizens who are organising the trade union movement? There is a feeling, of course, that we should pursue the policy of the American trade unions of not associating with any political party, but as they say in America, reward your friends and punish your enemies. Uh, on the whole, that has not been very successful in America. And uh, while the standard of living in America is that much higher than here, when one allows for the resources available in America, I don't think the difference is that very, very much great. They've still got three or four million unemployed. They've still got people living in a poverty line as low as we have. And that shouldn't be in the States. But that is one of the, I think, results from the trade unions failing in their responsibility in respect uh, of the political life of the country. Here we've pursued a different line, and more and more unions are coming to associate uh, with the uh, political party. As such a strong advocate of political action, Jim Larkin puzzled and dismayed many of his admirers when he himself retired from active politics, having served with distinction as a Labour deputy. What John Swift has to say about this is of interest. Uh, Jim, of course, was not only Jim Larkin, but he was a Larkinite. He reverenced his father very, very much. And I think uh, this would have to be taken into account in explaining his abandonment of politics uh, because he had great gifts as a politician and if he had been given the opportunity, he would have made a great statesman. He, he had the capabilities for that. But uh, with his socialist convictions, of course, he didn't get very far. Uh, in the Labour Party at the time, the, not only were the Labour leaders in the party at the time uh, not socialists, but they, they were positively anti-socialists and uh, a man like young Jim Larkin with very strong and well-informed socialist uh, convictions. He felt his position pretty intolerable. But the call of Larkinism, the reverence for the father, uh, certainly was a factor in calling him back to trade union work, to build up the union, the Workers' Union of Ireland, which his father had founded. I think this uh, has to be taken into account in uh, explaining his uh, departure from active politics. I knew him as a man having very, very well-informed, uh, solid socialist convictions that he didn't express uh, just in slogans or 
the dogmas of socialism are that. He was a pragmatic man that was hoping to have an opportunity of uh, doing something practical to establish socialism. Now, you know, this question that's uh, been talked about at the present time has become an active uh, question in the Labour Party, for instance, and indeed in some of the other parties, that is this uh, industrial democracy. Well, I had a few chats with uh, young Jim uh, before he died on this uh, particular topic because I have a special interest in this because I, I've been working on the subcommittee in the Labour Party that has prepared a document on this subject and I was very anxious to get young Jim Narkin's views about it knowing that he'd be very well informed about it and I found that um, he hadn't uh, very much enthusiasm for talking about it. Uh, I think he had the view that uh, a lot of the people in the party, as well as others outsiders, who are now very voluble about industrial democracy, uh, he doubted their uh, sincerity or that they had a complete understanding as to what it meant. Uh, for him, industrial democracy, of course, meant socialism, you see, and uh, he wasn't one to uh, go uh, to be captivated by slogans or that type of thing, that he wouldn't talk about industrial democracy unless within the context of socialism, you see. One of Jim Larkin's great concerns was for unity in the trade union movement. Both he and his father had been involved in the tragic splits which weakened the movement in the 20s and again in the 40s. In the RTE interview already quoted, he suggested that perhaps too much had been made of the conflict of personalities between his father and William O'Brien. Uh, yes, I think there was much more than merely a personal clash, uh, because one has got to bear in mind that in the earlier period of 1910 up to 1913, uh, both of them had been active in the trade union movement in a very critical period, and the clash had not impeded their working together. Uh, the trade union movement is made up of many diverse sections and diverse personalities, and uh, it has the peculiarity of being able to impose upon diverse sections this ability to work together. Uh, what is overlooked is that at the period of 1923, when my father returned from America, he returned into a new situation in this country, in first of which the national struggle had developed and taken on most intense forms. The trade union movement was subject to demands and pressures that hadn't existed previously in the period 1910 to 1913. It was a straightforward issue. It was the workers against the employers. Now in the 20s, you had the national problems, political problems. You had social problems developing as between different sections of the community. Uh, you had the Irish people split in itself, and you had economic pressures through the aftermath of the First World War, uh, which were far greater than the simple question that they faced in, say, 1910 to 1913, uh, of winning uh, simple and limited increases in wages at a very low level. Uh, all this uh, imposed upon the trade union movement, and particularly upon the union in which both my father and William O'Brien were present, uh, new demands uh, and new concepts of what was the role of the trade union movement. Uh, at this period looking back, I think one thing that can be said, and that is that insofar as the division of the movement developed, I think it was a division that came through 
kind of force of circumstances beyond the control of the individuals. Uh, I don't think either Jim Larkin uh, wished to see the movement divided. Uh, I don't think William O'Brien wanted to see it divided. But uh, forces are generated that push men along, and uh, they're not able to resist them at that time. Uh, that was the case at that particular period. It was a period in which, of course, uh, men's feelings in every respect, both on trade union questions, political questions, were very intense, very keen, and uh, their reactions were very sharp. Uh, they didn't always have the time to stop and think, and very often an action taken today has its, had its consequences in the following week, which nobody foresaw. And uh, again, we've got to bear in mind that the Irish people had come through a revolutionary period, starting, one might say, I think in the early years of the present century. Uh, it had culminated not merely in the physical test of the uh, actual struggle against the British government, the Black and Tans. They had lived through the period of the World War in which tens of thousands of Irish men had been wounded or killed, and they had suffered many physical and economic hardships. Uh, the Irish nation had been split from top to bottom, and it's too much to expect that the trade union movement, which is part of that nation, could be immune to these uh, divisionary forces that were affecting our people. It would require a much more mature and more highly organized trade union movement and labor movement to be able to not merely resist these uh, tendencies towards divisions, but in fact to maintain its own unity and impose a unity on its own people within the nation as a whole. The divisions of the 1940s he regretted deeply. And when the time was ripe, he set about the work of restoring the last unity in long and patient negotiations, which culminated at the, in the setting up of the present Irish Congress of Trade Unions. His concern was with unity of structures, but more deeply, unity of purpose. Barry Desmond. Uh, yes, he said uh, way back in uh, 1949 in his famous speech in Belfast when he was then a TD, he said, but where no vital principle appears to be involved and where, as in the case of the Irish working class movement, unity can make possible great and effective advances in the strength and effectiveness of the movement and in the service that movement can give to working people, then the effort to attain unity is a paramount duty on all who claim to have the interests of the Irish workers at heart. And he finished up making a very passionate plea, uh, saying to them, uh, let us stop the game of trade union power politics. Let us stop the long, the cold war, he called it, or long-range shooting war of letters. And he wanted us to get down and have unity. He made a tremendous effort in his lifetime. And I think succeeded in bringing about this unity with John Conroy, Norman Kennedy, and I think also the fact that the older generation had gone. He was one of the new generation in the trade union movement at the time. And his contribution to uh, ICTU as such was very considerable. His personal contribution was tremendous because he had this ability, he had two great abilities, the ability of analytical argument, cold, dispassionate, tremendous sense of humour, rather caustic individual. I was often at the receiving end, I can assure you, uh, here in Congress. Uh, but he also had this ability, I think perhaps more than anybody else in the trade union movement, of summing up and assessing individuals, their personal uh, strength uh, in a given situation. And he therefore sized up the opposition to trade union unity. He out-talked them, out-manoeuvred them, and brought them with him. And I want to say in fairness that if the Transports Union had not uh, 
decided to come with trade union unity. And if the amalgamated transport in Northern Ireland with its 80,000 members hadn't decided to come as well, there would never have been unity, no matter what Larkin uh, fought for in terms of unity. It was a fusion of uh, acceptance that the old splits of the 40s were outdated and that the old red herrings of communism and British unions and so on, and that these were all a lot of nonsense, relatively speaking, and the split arose out of feuds between personalities, Larkin and O'Brien, and so on, Transport Union versus WI. Labour Party was involved in it as well, because Transport Union was unhappy about Jim Larkin becoming a deputy. Old Jim became a Labour deputy, young Jim became a Labour deputy. Transport Union broke away in 40, 43, 44. And I think it, in the end it transpired and I think got into everybody's minds that this was no way to continue rational trade union structure in the country. And it all fused into the Congress. Uh, in 57-59. Your reference there to uh, trade unionists in the north reminds me that uh, Jim Larkin was concerned about national unity too. Uh, tremendous. You see, I've always, uh, coming from Cork and being reared in this, I would say, slightly anti not so much anti-Larkin tradition, but men like P.J. O'Brien and Cork, uh, in fairness to dead, no, I don't want to comment on Julian them, but I wouldn't say they were very pro-Larkin, no more than perhaps my father was in the earlier years, but he came to appreciate Jim Larkin's stature in later years. But um, most certainly he was not just a Dublin trade union leader. He wasn't uh, a, just uh, a sort of a congressman or a Labour deputy. Larkin on partition, for example, long before anybody went north, Larkin urged in 1949, but by quoted, he says, let us urge upon the governments in both areas the need of utilising every opportunity for mutual exchange of views and, where possible, joint endeavours in dealing with the problems of economic development, trade, transport and cultural extensions so that all people may come to learn in a practical manner of the possibilities of it and advantages of cooperation. It was about 12, 14 years later before anybody went north, and Larkin finished up, you know, saying that, above all, let us not feel that any effort to find a bridge, however slender, across the gulf dividing the ordinary people north and south, is a betrayal of principle or a compromise of positions. And at that famous speech, he also demanded very clearly, he said, let us state in definite and defined terms the undertakings we are prepared to give on issues of minority rights on this island and questions of conscience on this island. Larkin, in the 1949, when it wasn't very popular to talk in that context about partition, when we were having our sort of anti-partition junkets in the Mansion House uh, in Dublin, Larkin was, I think, ahead of his time, and very much was, uh, very much a, an anti-partition man, and national unity man, and he denounced in 1949, he denounced the Ireland Act, and he said the intrusion of an outside authority into a domestic problem, the rigid fixing of a barrier of no ultimate permanency, and he finished up by saying that this Ireland Act, which was introduced by a British Labour government, and which Larkin fully knew, he said that this placed a decision as to any future change solely in the hands of a political caucus, rather than leaving it to the people as a whole. This contributed uh, to the making of a right-minded protest. He therefore understood partition, after all, the tremendous links with the working people of Belfast. He understood Belfast people and... Uh, uh, I think Larkin was very much a revered, and still indeed is a revered name, and uh, acceptance within Britain, Northern Ireland, working-class opinion. And as such, I think he did give a common bridge, and uh, indeed the title of the speech was a common loyalty of people North and South. Speaking at Jim Larkin's grave, John Foster spoke of the great ideas of unity and solidarity 
which Larkin always insisted were the keystone of the workers' movement, and how these ideas were being imperiled in the present industrial situation. I asked James Dunn, President of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, did he not think that Larkin would be dismayed by the present situation? I don't think Jim Larkin would have been dismayed at the present situation affecting our country and the trade union movement. Jim always gave me the impression that everything had happened before. That feeling which comes, I believe, only with the experience of a lifetime. Jim would, I believe, have been putting first things first. He would have been working patiently, and working very hard behind the scenes, as was his want, to try and find a, a solution uh, to the, the, this particular problem. And this, in fact, of course, was Jim's greatest asset. As he walked behind the scenes and he was uh, uh, there for us. He would have had the advantage, too, of uh, carrying the great weight that was his by virtue of his stature in our movement and in the country. Now, I don't mean to say that he would not have been concerned. He would have been concerned because concern for our movement and for the workers was his hallmark. But as I've said already, he would have put forced things first. He would have been concerned, I believe, at the effects of this dispute upon our movement. And he would have been anxious, uh, as it were, as a student of trade unionism, that we should always draw the necessary and, and somewhat obvious model from the present situation with which we're confronted. He would, for instance, have redoubled his efforts to achieve uh, a unity in our movement. Not, no, not because he believed in amalgamation per se, not because he believed that an amalgamation of the smaller unions was the be-all and end-all, but because he believed that in larger and more efficient unions, the worker would have got a better protection and that he would have forged more efficient uh, weapons for the attainment of uh, social justice. I, I believe Jim would have concentrated on these things. And then, of course, being Jim Larkin, he would have again, because it was something he constantly referred to, he would have again sought to highlight the flaws and the defects of our present economic system. These flaws and defects which make uh, such a confrontation not alone uh, possible, but almost inevitable. And as a follow-on from that, he would have, I believe, have been uh, pointing out to trade unionists that trade union activity as such was relatively narrow and insular, and that to be fully effective must be married to a form of activity in the political field. Not merely, if I may say so, in the field of party politics, but in the field of political science, because he was a great believer that our movement has both the industrial and the political arm. Uh, I believe that in the present situation which must be solved, we have the opportunity in the trade union movement, if we're big and courageous enough to take it, to build a monument to Jim Larkin. And I don't want to sound anyway uh, smug or pious in saying that. I believe that Jim Larkin was a great man. 
And that only as time goes on, we realise that we were privileged to walk in the company of a really great man. And if, and many of us do believe that, and all of us who knew and walked around believe it, if we want to pay him a tribute, this, I think, is the best tribute we can seek to pay to him. To apply to the present situation, but particularly to the situation which will be in existence after this dispute is over, to try and apply his thinking, his philosophy, and his ambitions to the the now, I believe, mammoth task that we all of us have of building up again the trade union movement. No greater tribute can we pay to Jim Larkin than to try and, as it were, salvage from uh, the situation that we're now unfortunately faced with, to salvage from that, all that is best in trade unionism, put it together and give us a good, united, Irish trade union movement. A little while ago, Jim Larkin was asked, was he satisfied with the achievements of the movement till then? I think uh, with our resources, we could do better. I think with our resources, we will do better in the future because I am very much convinced uh, that the future of our people in this country uh, lies to a very great extent, if not completely, in the hands of young men and women, who give service to the community at present, and that those young men and women in time will learn to use uh, the weapons that have been built up and established for them in the shape of the trade unions, in the shape of the Labour Party. When that day comes, then we'll see progress being made much more rapidly than we have in the past. Uh, We've made too many mistakes in the past. Uh, We haven't developed the ability to uh, get over our mistakes quickly enough. And I think uh, the younger people will probably learn by our mistakes and learn that we have in the trade union movement and the Labour Party uh, tremendous potentialities to bring about uh, great improvements for our people. And when I say our people, I'm not thinking just uh, the members of the trade union movement, but of the whole of the Irish people.